Welcome to the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by who? Well, Graham Goodwin, since he's my co-pilot, co-host, and uh, co-franchisee. I don't know what, but he's my co. He's my better half. He's my Englisher half. He's gooder at English than I is. Uh, Cooper Tires, great partners of ours, Graham. The Justice Brothers, mighty fine partners of ours. TorontoMotorsports.com. Uh, they're just full of delight. So with that powerful trio of show partners, plus a co-presenter with you and your dog and our two cats here at home, I think we have a mighty fine sports car army ready to do a bunch of listener Q&A as our cat Rocky jumps up and walks right in front of me. Hey, he didn't put his butt in my face. That's a nice development. Uh, this is going to be another rapid fire episode. Why? Because we are on the road and driving in five zero minutes to a long appointment far away. So since you are the official selector of categories where we start first, do we go with a category first or do we go with a newsy-ish topic that has come up, I don't know, today that uh, or your name for the attribution that's kind of important to know? Well, I think, um, hello everybody, I'm in Monza, um, and that's relevant because of one of the stories that's been breaking uh, today. It actually, and I think we could be saying a lot more of this, MP, cuts across both of our principal topic areas, cuts across IMSA, cuts across uh, WEC Aslam's Elms ACO. Um, And I think we can probably dip in here to to the, the lead parts of both those question lists. It's a multiple, multifaceted thing, isn't it? It's the announcement that IMSA will uh, will join that full convergence from 2023, which is earlier than we all thought it could possibly happen. Um, it's uh, lots of questions beyond that, but more particularly, it's the reveal. We've all now seen the extraordinary Peugeot 9x8 or 9x8 or 9x8, whatever you want to call it, um, hypercar, the LMH car that will be joining the WEC in 2022. And it's the further revelation of what is going what that uh, IMSA announcement, um, the confirmation of the uh, full convergence, is going to mean for not just for Peugeot, but for the wider Stellantis group with, quote, open discussion now underway about using the spine, the, the powertrain chassis basis of that car, potentially for other Stellantis brand or brands. What is Stellantis, um, Graham? It's it's not a uh, <laughs> it's not a bowel disorder, although it sounds no, like it's one. A bit, it sounds a bit like a kind of baddie from the Justice League, doesn't it? Um, not the Justice Brothers, Justice League, but it's a huge global um, auto uh, conglomerate. Uh, amongst the brands it, con- it controls in Europe are the XGM uh, Europe brands of Opel and Vauxhall, uh, the XPSA brands, that is uh, Peugeot, Citroen. Uh, the DS brand, uh, Fiat, um, Lancia, Alfa Romeo, Maserati in the States. It's the FCA brands that were there, Chrysler, Ram, Dodge, Mopar. Uh, that's just part of what this, this astonishingly large company has actually got. And of course, they've got brands there with all sorts of sporting aspirations, all sorts of niche markets. And it, it's worth reading the copy that you've put into Racer today, I've put into Daily Sports Car today. Um, we're not there yet, but I think this is the point at which you dive in, MP, and, and, and we talk about maybe what the most likely outcome of those 
conversations, discussions uh, is likely to be if indeed it comes to fruition. First, my hope was it would be Jeep. I want to see Jeep competing at the 24 Hours of Daytona. That would be amazing. Uh, another thing, do we call the new Peugeot? And yes, I love it when our uh, English listeners send in notes saying that Americans need to learn how to pronounce Peugeot. Of course, English telling folks how to pronounce a French word, always one of my finer irony moments. Uh, do we call it the Peugeot Maths? Since it appears they've named the car something that they want people to solve. Do we call it the Peugeot 72? Uh, uh, nine times eight? I don't know what we call it, but we call it something. Uh, yeah, so what I've heard rumblings of for a little while now, I, I couldn't tell you if I remember exactly when the first time was, but just been hearing that there might be some American interest in getting in on... Uh, this LMH thing since, as you mentioned, as part of the uh, Stellantis uh, bowel disorder uh, comic book baddie uh, conglomeration, uh, we certainly have the uh, the Peugeot 9X8 being something that could be rebadged uh, as a uh, an American muscle car type thing. So I've been hearing that for just a little bit. And then, frankly, it was a conversation that I've had uh, within the last couple of days with a senior uh, principal of a uh, upcoming future uh, factory prototype program who told me they had heard the same thing as well. And so at that point, I'm like, okay, well, we've now got a couple of, you know, really solid sources. Uh, and it was more than just saying they'd heard about it. There was an actual in-depth conversation where you go, oh, okay, wow, this is, you know, you're hearing this is as real as I am terms of possibilities so not saying it's going to happen hope it absolutely does but the main thing that i've heard is that of all those brands dodge is the one being looked at as the best fit for a peugeot 9x8 rebrand to be used in the usa knowing that at present peugeots are not sold here they were once and lovingly so but that is not a brand americans know so coming over here and competing at Daytona, Sebring, wherever else, trying to win that with the Peugeot, just saying from a marketing standpoint, uh, there could be greater value in trying to do that with the car, uh, wearing Dodge colors and uh, branding. So that's what I've heard. Other part that I've heard, Graham, and it's suggested in the article with the quotes that you used from the head of Stellantis, that uh, not committing to anything, but they're thinking about an American possibility with the car that aligns with what i've heard thinking of everything from a part-time program maybe those big endurance races to who knows could there be a dual imsa and WEC program with uh these differently presented uh models or versions of the car uh could we have a full-time thing again uh we've never had to my knowledge, Peugeot is a full-time participant in the USA with the prototype. I mean, back in the mm-hmm. 908 HDI FAP days, it was great to get them here at one or two of the big endurance races, but it was never more than guest appearances. So that's the big thing, Graham, maybe to close on the subject and start rolling into some of the questions, which is convergence, opening the real possibility now for WEX LMH, IMSA's LMDH to play equally and universally 
in each other's championships. That's here. What would be a, a brilliant development of this development? One of those brands that we expected never really to venture outside of Europe, or outside, I should say outside of the WC, to actually commit to doing a decent, if not a, a full factory effort in IMSA. Uh, that would be fascinating and maybe something, maybe, that leads to more of those LMH brands considering, well, maybe we should think about that too. So big stuff, brother, opening up in just a week of, uh, of possibilities. It shows you, though, we're going to move on to one of the other LMH brands in just a moment. But, of course, the, the other thing, other than just the convergence process that unlocks that, is that ability to utilize the different brands with a car that's already been de- developed to meet the performance criteria, the performance window. And whether or not that's a simple rebranding or rebodying, it's a relatively cheap and simple way without those massive development budgets. But it does give a massive marketing and, for the lesser part, technology tool to, to wield. We'll move into some more questions. Daniel Summerskill says... Um, what category are we in, by the way? I apologize, because I should hit the little note here, marker, of what category we're in. Oh, we're in IMSA. Oh, there's no doubt we're in IMSA. Okay. Let's just go All with right. that right now. Sure. We should just... just, just put a pin in that map. Uh, Daniel Summersgill says, with LMH now eligible for IMSA, depending on the manufacturers paying the commercial fees, what are the chances of the Ferrari LMH debuting at the Rolex 24 Hours of Daytona? Um, he says, for me, hashtag me personally, that would go down like a fart in church with the ACO. What say you? <laughs> Not convinced that's the case, actually. I think we're actually getting to the point now where, much as that takes away a bit of a headline, I do sense there's been a there's been a sea change here. I think we're now getting to a point where the principles behind these two major series can actually now properly see um, that there is massive mutual benefit in exactly these kind of storylines developing as they are in rapid fire order MP. This is the the fascinating thing to ponder, Daniel. And thanks for the great question here. And I know Brian McCoy is a bit of a follow-up um, talking about, well, anyways, we'll get to that in a sec. But so, hey, this Convergence is going to debut on IMSA's home soil, IMSA's big grand opening event. Whether it's a Ferrari debuting its LMH there and who knows, maybe winning uh, or just bringing a lot of attention to this American event. Would that be a bad thing? Just expanding this a little bit to, well, okay, we're converging, but is there anybody at IMSA, Graham, that wants an LMH to take the overall win uh, in the debut event for its LMDHs? Uh, Do they make sure through BOP that at least in terms of raw pace, there's no chance that could happen. Again, who knows how many cars fail or crashes or whatever, and who knows how it finishes. But would they actually allow this non-IMSA prototype to uh, have a, a, an equal or better chance of winning? And these are all great you know, bench racing items. I take away from this, Daniel, that this is just going to be messy and we need to embrace that messiness. The, hey, you're a Ferrari and you're doing an LMH and we assume you're going to do some customer cars and we who knows what all you're going to do. But uh, in theory, 
you are a WEC inspired creation here with the hypercar route you've gone. Uh, are the hypercar folks, the ACO and WC, going to get super mad if the very first time we see that car race happens to be an IMSA? I don't know, but I am positive that using this example you've brought up, there are going to be multiple instances where whether it's the sanctioning body or a manufacturer or whatever else that gets really grumpy at who does what and where is there another brand and i'm not sticking to daytona in 2023 but is there one brand that's planning on doing something big at some event maybe a home race whether it's this year next year whenever and another brand decides to unveil something there uh in theory, maybe taking away a little bit of uh, thunder and whatnot from that first brand's intent. Uh, I don't know if this is just going to be clean and pure. Everyone's going to stay out of each other's way, do things that are in the best interest of the sanctioning body they're attached to. Uh, It just feels like if there's an accepted area of convergence, it's going to be, yeah... There's going to be a lot of topics of conversation on the show, Graham, of can you believe what so-and-so just did? Wow, they pissed off some folks. But, hey, uh, this is what you do when you have two totally different houses and concepts that are coming together to race because everyone refused to actually get on the same page and do the same thing together. So I think it's just going to be messy constantly, oh, Daniel, yeah. and natural. So... Buckle in. I, I think you're right. Embrace it. And I'll add in another little bit of the mix here, MP, which we don't yet know what they're going to do about this conversion side of things. What's going to happen with calendars? What's going to happen with the status of some of those big races? Will there be an incentive for some of those teams, those manufacturers to do both? How will they do that? We don't know. There's been absolutely no information whatsoever at this point about that because I think actually at this point they've been too busy getting us to this point. But there's all sorts of truly interesting possibilities that might come out from that discussion. And some of the things they try will be, I'm sure, earth-shatteringly successful, and others will die like dog on a street and not going to be short of questions uh, for the rest of our natural careers. Let's have a look a little bit further down the line here. Rob Chalmers asks... Um, with IMSA now allowing LMHs to run in their top class in 2023, do you think Glickenhaus will make IMSA its home either in a works or customer form as it would suit its sales audience for the road cars better than WEC flyways? I can probably dive in and answer that in part. I know that Jim Glickenhaus, I uh, long chat with Jim earlier in the weekend, is very keen indeed uh, to do some of those bigger races in the United States. I think he's far less keen of than paying a sanctioning, um, paying a sanctioning fee. I don't know what that debate might look like. It'll be very interesting to see it. The five hypercars today in free practice run, one um, uh, separated by just half a second. So, you know, that part of the, the deal is kind of coming together. Well, we'll wait and see. A bit of hashtag wait and see with Scuderia Cameron Glickenhouse. Sorry, tongue-tied. Um, Brandon Kratzer says, are we going to get Persia at the Rolex 24? I guess that depends on whether or not we get Dodge, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, again, uh I, if it happens, I have to believe it's going to be under some form of American branding, but who knows? Back to the Glickenhaus thing quickly, and then 
I don't know, Ooh. Grant, maybe pick one more IMSA question. I know you all sent in plenty, but again, this is going to have to be a rapid-fire episode, and we need to get to Graham's area and then some general and maybe some fun. But Jim is the most malleable sports car <laughs> team owner I can think of in a really long time. I know that in terms of sensibilities, he is a very proud American. He's also an American with a massive passion for European racing, 24 hours of Le Mans, etc. So a Euro loving American constructor slash entrant, not a surprise that rather than trying to make a Glickenhaus DPI or LMDH, he has gone for a hypercar, which until we just had conversion, a conversion, sure, uh, we'll stick with that, pervergence. Uh, he had only ever planned on racing the car uh, throughout the WC calendar. There was no, we're going to build this and really truly harbor a massive desire one day for us to be campaigning the car throughout North America. Will he? Sure, if that possibility happens. If he does, I'd love to see it. But do I think that Jim wakes up each morning thinking, woohoo, going to Laguna Seca, going to mid Ohio? Eh, I don't think so. But if the doors opened, I could see that happening, provided there are customers behind that campaign. Customers meaning Jim's not paying for it strictly out of his pocket. Little kernel to close. There was nothing listed, Graham, in the Convergence press release about the North American side and minimum car numbers or anything like that that could potentially scrub a Glickenhaus out of the conversation. We know that that's been a topic in the past. Hey, is there going to be a minimum homologation number? You got to make X number of cars. Yeah, we have read that comment from IMSA, uh, IMSA's leadership over the last year to whatever it's been of, you know, we're not really looking to do boutique top tier prototype manufacturers. We want, you know, big hardcore manufacturers who are spending and activating a ton. Um, so while there was no mention of that in this convergence press release, the takeaway that I had it wasn't a super deep press release. It had some BOP, mm-hmm. how we're going to try and make the two classes work together, uh, in-depth bits. There's no far-reaching, and hey, we're going to say you must make a 1,000 cars a year, a 100 a year, 10,000. There's none of that included. So I would say let's not assume the lack of that information in the press release means it won't be an issue in the future. Just... They really only dove into the technical BOP side, not the homologation regulatory inclusion side, where I'm keeping a little bit of a concern as to whether Glickenhaus would or would not be allowed once uh, pervergence happens. Um, let's, let's have a couple of quick ones at the end of this one. Uh, one or two asking whether or not we will indeed see LMH cars at day 223. I don't think there's any doubt of that. It is full convergence from the start of that season. Um, 
John D. Marshall says, you've been quite convinced up to now that IMSA wouldn't let LMH cars in until 24. I think that was principally me and, and uh, backed up by you, if at all. What do you think has changed their mind? Is it a two-car Rizzi Ferrari entry? What is it? I have to say, I think my mind's changed on that matter today as to what has made that difference. What say you, MB? Was unable to get it done this week uh, for publication. Uh, we're, as I mentioned, leaving here shortly. This will be our s- our last of the week, but it'll be our seventh or eighth appointment that we're driving out to and whatnot. It's just been a crazy week. So unfortunately, I haven't been able to publish much, but... I had a long interview with IMSA president John Doonan on Monday or Tuesday, maybe. So I'm going to get that hopefully out, I don't know, early next week. But I asked this question, hey, (laughs) what's changed? Because, boy, if you want to talk about holding the line of nope, ain't happening. Uh, That has been IMSA's position every time I've asked since Convergence was announced at Daytona in January of 2020. Yes, we're open to this. We'd like to do it, all that, blah, blah, blah. But there was no real timeline attached to it being real. And so as you've said and written countless times, as I have said and done the same countless times since then, could it happen? Sure, it ain't happening right away. IMSA's wanting to protect itself, not have its brand new LMDHs uh, be just beaten up and destroyed by highly developed LMHs with a couple of years of track time on them uh, right out of the gate. So, hey, 2024 maybe. Uh, who knows, maybe later. That's been, again, true. All factual, everything they've said to us. So that we've known that. What has changed, though? I, I got an okay feeling for an answer here, John. And I think, by and large, it was manufacturer pressure. I think true manufacturer desire is where this went from ain't happening anytime soon to, well, let's see if we could actually get it done. That's the third member of this conversation. You have the European prototype or the European sports car faction, the American prototype faction. They agreed on convergence. The American side said, but we'll let you know when we're ready. In the middle, there was this third aspect that developed, John, of manufacturers saying, yeah, we'd really like to do this as soon as possible. Can we? Can you guys try and come up with a way? What's happened, and this is a part that impresses me a little bit, Graham, I think you put this in your writing about convergence, uh, the agree- this new agreement a week ago, and I did as well. Instead of this being too opposing sports car organizations not finding the technical middle ground to make it happen from the onset when LMDH debuts in 2023, those organizations said, all right, well, why don't we get all you manufacturers who are making these LMHs and LMDHs in a proverbial room and y'all come up with ideas? And they did. There's a willingness in here too, Graham, that I think is new and it still fits on this manufacturer push and pressure side. There's some who weren't overly interested in wanting to have to give up some things that could be performance advantages in a converged operation starting in 2023. And so that's another area where I've seen there's some newfound looking at the bigger picture, 
wanting to get us all together type movement of, all right, well, maybe we are going to have to give up a little more than we wanted if we are going to try and get both forms of prototypes together uh, right off the bat here. So in that, we had two groups, a two-wheel drive-powered kind of technical working cluster and a four-wheel drive cluster. And I use the word cluster because as you've heard and I've heard in those meetings, the all-wheel drive cluster, primarily, I guess entirely, I should say, uh, from the hypercar side, uh, it was a bit of a cluster bleep in terms of the ideas they came up with and proposed for how to balance and converge. And it was indeed the two-wheel drive, primary, I guess you could say, entirely the LMDH side plus the Glickenhaus uh, side being rear-wheel drive, the only rear-wheel drive uh, car only in uh, hypercar at the moment. Uh, they were the ones who came up with the best ideas that the ACO, WC, and IMSA liked the most. And uh, I have heard that it was also something that the majority of the manufacturers overall liked the most. And so credit the Audi, Porsche, name the majority of the uh, uh, LMDH constructors, even one that is yet to be formally announced. I, I've heard, Graham, right? The, the rumor Go, that on, there's scoop, one out scoop. there. Yeah, I know. Scoop, breaking exclusive yes. scoop. Um, Pontiac. Um, no. Yeah. Anyways. I, it just sounds like, John, uh, too many people at very high positions at auto manufacturers who are and or will be spending a lot of money to do this said, let's make this happen now. Come on, because we want to enjoy the potential spoils of getting big things happening for us in America with our LMHs. There's marketing value, obviously. Name the brand. Wins. 12 hours of Sebring, 24 hours of Daytona, whatever, whatever, uh, Long Beach. Um, and there's also, granted, while the door was open for LMDH manufacturers right away to go to the WC, go to Le Mans, we know that door's been open. I think there's also a bit of a sense of, hey, if we don't really find some common ground and start working together right away, I wonder if that might actually impact our ability to go and do Le Mans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or just... Is this going to be an uglier thing for us if we don't push to make this seemingly impossible thing happen actually happen? So uh, could this be the one thing we haven't seen since Daytona 2020 come true? And that is opposing sides, opposing views, vested interests, by and large, being put aside and the bigger common best for all being embraced? I think that's the heart of the answer here, John. And boy, that makes me happy if that is indeed true. So while I am not the person who selects the categories that we go to, I can say it's time to go to a different category. Let's go to uh, WEC, Asums, Elms, ACO. Let's move across to ACO Rules Racing. And uh, I happen to say, the longer we get into this, the fewer divisions there are between the two because it is there is a real sense in this WC paddock this weekend of 
that common interest coming to the fore. Lots of really, really interesting prospects and considerations coming forward. Uh, lots of interesting people in the paddock. Maybe get to that in a couple of these questions and a couple of things that will be written uh, further and deeper into the weekend. But uh, let's have a look at that one. Where do you want me to start, MP? Well, I'm going to throw two at you. Then mm-hmm. I'm going to hit the mute button, so hopefully you don't hear my chair creaking, and go to the door <laughs> and get a delivery that just arrived that we need to take with us on this uh, appointment go, that we're looking for in 23 for minutes. So we're going to open up with uh, Xavier Ayeris and Matthew Levine. Uh, Xavier yep. opens with saying, could the current LMP2 chassis makers release some form of update, Graham, to turn their current uh, LMP2s into an LMH, LMDH, uh, and enter them under their own name. Uh, okay. A thought if LMP2 gets eaten by the new rules success, and Matthew adds, is it possible for any of the LMP2 teams to use our current chassis and convert it into an LMDH? So uh, give us a, a, a clear indication, uh, Graham, as to whether the line is crossed versus old and new and what okay. teams can or can't do or manufacturers can or can't. Right. Okay. So um, the answer is on a current LMP2, the answer is you can't change that into an LMDH uh, because the LMDH will be a new generation of LMP2 chassis, which will be designed specifically to accommodate the hybrid drive uh, that will be coming to the LMDH uh, uh, cars, the Porsche, Audi, uh, Acura, etc., and the others still to come, including that mystery American brand uh, that we could speculate, but uh, we can't be sure. Uh, but the, so the answer is on an LMDH. The answer is no. If we're talking here about, for instance, an Orica Gibson, you can't make that into an LMDH. Could you actually use the basis of that for a hypercar? I think within reason. Um, you'd, you'd have to take a look at just exactly what would need to be done in terms of the. Uh, the size of the car, but particularly meeting the uh, the aerodynamic window that is required, uh, then there's a theory that that could be done. There's a theory it could be done, for instance, with some of the bases of an older LMP1 car. Uh, there's all sorts of things you could achieve with LMH, either as a uh, rear-drive only non-hybrid car or uh, or whatever. There's no reason at all, for instance, why you couldn't make an LMP2 car as a road legal car in some way, shape, or form, and then bring that back as a um, road car based LMH. In theory, will anybody do it? Almost certainly not. I do think we're going to see some interesting prospects. There's been conversations, I've been party to some of them about some very interesting potential programs. But here's the rub um, you could number in the hundreds programs, ideas um, that never, ever come to fruition like that. So if you're there with your current generation LMP2, the answer is that's going to be now eligible until the end of 2023. And the likelihood is then that will be it. If you're talking about a new generation LMP2, well, reality there is, could you convert it to LMDH? You could, but you sort of, that sort of, defeats the objects in the first place. You might just as well design the thing for the first place as an LMDH. LMH, different completely. Chassis open, hybrid system open, no hybrid, a hybrid, bring what you want to bring. Um, And as long as it meets the performance window, the reality is it is a very broad church indeed. And getting broader with what Persia are bringing, 
I'm sure it'll get broader still with what Ferrari will decide to bring against the Tota and indeed the Glickenhaus. So that was an amazing answer of which I heard the last 30 seconds of. So I just want to say easily the best thing uh, you've ever answered before. Uh, Let's see. Why don't we go to Chris Mock, um, who says on the Groot, the Toyota GR010 road car, there was an alleged scoop that the road car version burned down at Fuji Speedway during a test, and it could lead to a cancellation of the project as well as a potentially potential exit from the WEC. The WC part seems untrue, but what do you make of the road car part, Graham? Uh, and then also specifically the pulling out of WC part of the scoop refers to minimal production count of the base road car. Yep. But we all know Toyota went with a prototype route, so it's not bound by any road car. And we've got one or two other, Trevor Gagola, J.M. Chandler. So uh, tell us about this spicy rumor. Well, okay, first things first. Um, I've seen the Japanese report. I've seen a translated version of it. Um, do I believe it's correct that there was a serious incident involving a either early production or pre-production uh, version of the road car? 100% agree that I think that looks like a credible report, and I do believe they had a serious issue with that car. Um, do I believe that that road car program is cancelled? I think that's highly likely that uh, we might not be seeing that road car come to fruition. Do I see a straight, bold line between that and a total intention to pull out? Uh, Well, as Chris said, um, they are building a prototype. You don't need to build road cars in that instance. So that uh, part of the the argument doesn't come to fruition. Do I believe they will leave? (sighs) No, is the straight answer. Could they leave? Yes, should they choose to do so. I will just add this. There are other things underway at the moment that make me believe that is unlikely. Okay, there are other things underway right now around that wider program that make me believe that an, that an early decision has not been made to um, to, uh, to to end that program this early. Um, do I believe they've got a challenge on their hands with that car? I do. I think that car is perhaps not quite what they thought it was going to be for them. My guess is that they've seen the response to the Peugeot coming and they've kind of thought, oh God, you know, this is, this is good. This is serious. Ferrari makes it even more serious. And then the names that are coming from LMDH makes it significantly more serious. So clearly they're going to be under pressure by their Japanese paymasters to produce the goods. Um, simple, isn't it? When, You've had a history of not quite making it to push and push and push until you've made it. They've made it against at times limited opposition, but they've now got used to success. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to accept something other than success in a marketplace which has been your own. So, look, have I asked the questions? I've absolutely asked the questions. The answers, uh, the answers have been, as you might imagine, highly political. Uh, and absolutely non-committal, which is exactly what they should be, either in the case where they're going to pull out or in the case where they're not. I do not believe there is an imminent pullout coming from Toyota. Have heard and continue to hear that there could be <clears throat> an extensive redevelopment of mm-hmm. the Groot LMH. I believe they have one left, uh, one joker left or whatever we want to call it, but uh, have heard that there could be some extensive work on the way to make it a better hypercar. And although I have not 
put some of these things in print or even into the podcast, although Graham and I have discussed them, uh, have absolutely heard about some of the deficiencies that they currently face that make the car not awesome. And boy, they sound like the kind of things that would lead you to want to start a massive redevelopment ASAP. So yeah, pulling out, going away. I have not heard that on the racing side, but I can tell you, I continue to hear that there might be a different looking Groot, uh, definitely by the time we get to the next season. So, yeah. uh, well, while you're looking for the question, I'll, I'll fill in the gap here, which is nothing to stop Toyota. Yes, that car is homologated for four years. Okay. Nothing to stop them from homologating a different car. Nothing at all. Um, you know, the, the, the differentiation between the two, there's nothing to stop them from coming forward and saying, we're going to spend the money and we're going to basically say, we're going to take this element, this element, and this element, but these other four major elements, we're going to dispense with those and spend the money because that's the, that, that is the limiting factor about homologation. It's uh, the willingness to spend the money and go through a whole new homologation. They could take all sorts of opportunities here um, to, you know, correct to the position they would like to be to respond to the real competition that's now going to come. Because with respect to the Alpine, that is not a hypercar. It is a grandfather's Olympian one car. And with absolute and total respect to Jim Glickenhaus, beating Jim Glickenhaus is not what Toyota are about. It's essential to get where they want, but that's not why they're doing it. They're coming in to win and to beat Peugeot, and to beat Porsche, and to beat Audi, and to beat Ferrari, and to beat a uh, potential as yet unnamed uh, American brand that we can't be sure will Pontiac. eventually come in. Pontiac. Pontiac. Um, but the reality, that's the game. And if they think that they're exposed to the risk of not being able to do that, you can be sure that that's the program that's happening in the background at the moment. There is a lot of hashtag wait and see. Well, since I'm the ex-race engineer guy between the two of us on the show, uh, I actually, it's a rare thing where folks ask me to talk about wacky type stuff. Um, But we got a couple of our fine listeners axing for me to wax on a little bit about uh, the Peugeot uh, 9X8, the 72, the the Peugeot Maths. Uh, Damien Peachman, Marshall, thoughts on the Peugeot? Uh, Stephen Gate, good on you. You're into the same thing that I had noticed as well. Uh, says, hope you had a nice break. Firstly, what are your impressions of the Peugeot 72? Um, uh, let's see. And with the distinctive claw lights on the front back, mm. do you realize that Eurosport commentators really will be able to identify the car at Le Mans at night? That's a deep cut there. That's a deep reference, Stephen. Good on you. Um, general thoughts, I love it. I love it. I love it couple things on the top side of the car that strike me as first iteration could that be a little bit draggy and could there be some scoops and whatnot that might get revised once they get into track testing yes thing that i love most if i'm just giving a general impression before i get to the second strand of uh, of questions here graham i'm really surprised it has taken this long for a manufacturer to step forward and be the first to treat the interior of the car like it is something to maximize in terms of a presentation 
yeah. uh, and marketing identification standpoint, what they've done inside the car to think of it as, yes, this is the cockpit. This is where we have all the things the driver needs and instrumentation and blah, blah, blah. But let's think of this as we would the interior of a road car and have many fine appointments within it and think of colors and style that of anything that comes from this car in terms of setting standards, Graham, I think this is the one item that others are going to follow. And I would expect this to become not common with every LMH and LMDH uh, in the future, but I think we're going to see more companies uh, when you see them do it, when they unveil their, uh, prototype here in the coming year years there's going to be more than one opportunity to say uh did you thank Peugeot because you just did that because they did it uh first the second strand of questions all related to the lack of a rear wing and you and I discussed this before we started recording I've not mentioned this yet in print because you don't want to uh present negatives before you can see uh, true real world results in the uh, track on track testing. Um, Jerry Suddeth, James Counter, Andres Lantos talking about, hey, there's no rear wing. Do we think this might lead to a general move away from rear wings um, on sports cars? Uh, James Counter, um, again, very curious about the same thing. And I would just say that this is not the first time this has happened in motor racing at all. The direction of, and this is primarily Graham in Formula One, although I've seen it mm-hmm. once or twice in IndyCar, uh, where teams have taken the rear wing off the thing um, on super speedways in a uh, effort to create more straight line propulsion. Uh, we've seen in Formula One in particular, late 70s, super early 80s, until it was banned. But when we had massive underbody downforce as the true primary area where downforce was created. And this is giant under underwings that run almost the entire length of the car and sliding skirts to seal off the underwing and just, you know, double the amount of downforce. There were some cars that said, Hey, we are going to go without the front wings because, and I know the questions about rear wing, but I'm just, this is, not so much specific to front or rear. It's the concept of bottom of the car. That's where the majority of downforce is being made. Let's try and get away from having these wings or f- whatever, one aspect of the exposed wings. Let's get rid of it and save ourselves a lot of drag, Potent- you know, save ourselves some weight as well. But the main idea, let's get this thing sticking out in the airstream the rear wing obviously being the thing that is up highest and uh sticking out the most let's get this big drag causing thing out of here and boy we're going to be in great shape Uh, not a lot of those cars in the past stuck on that path for very long we're talking decades ago though right so new technology new that well okay Air's still the same, friends. <laughs> the air hasn't changed. Uh, the ability to use the underbody of the car to make a ton of downforce in hypercar regulations is possible. Not an LMDH, but certainly an LMH. Good on them, and I truly hope that this works. 
where this could be a liability and something that does not is not so much in a qualifying scenario where in theory you have most of the track to yourself or that you aren't stacked behind a bunch of cars in particular slower gt cars with a relatively free run around a track feeding the hashtag front nose feeding the front of the car the underbody tons of clean and clear air you can make gobs of underbody downforce in theory you would not need that rear wing start talking about getting into racing scenarios where you're coming into some faster corners and you do have traffic in front of you and maybe it's an lmp2 car maybe it's another hypercar who knows what it is but you're no longer getting enough clean non-draggy non-dirty air to feed the front of the car to then make all that downforce to make it stick that becomes a concern that's Mm -hmm. where having that wing sticking out the back uh even though it's a arrow penalty in terms of the drag that it creates it's still going to make use of that air hitting it uh up above and produce downforce to help you so that's my first thought just to to close on this that's the primary thought qualifying great race trim there could be some uh, situations and races as we know in a six hour 12 hour i'm sorry well however many hour race that this could be an issue Uh, the other thing too and this is just a trim item talking about center of pressure and balancing the car aerodynamically front to back having a a wing angle to play with having gurney tabs to fit uh to tune make small tuning adjustments that's a pretty powerful thing We'll have to see what the non-rear wing solution is for the Peugeot in terms of aero tuning at the back. That's another driver satisfaction and performance thing that we need to think about. And having the ability to make small adjustments uh, sure is easy with a wing and with gurney flaps attached to the top of the wing. They can replicate, certainly replicate some of that with... uh, whatever we want to call it, a spoiler at the back of the body on the uh, the Peugeot 72, but I'm curious to see how they will treat that to give themselves the options that they need. Uh, I, I, this, I did speak briefly to Olivier Jansony, who's the technical director of the Peugeot Sport Program, and what he says is, look, all of our simulations say that this current treatment with no rear wing it does give us the uh, the advantage that we're looking for. Uh, gets us into that window. He also said that they uh, they intend absolutely to start their test program down that road of uh, no rear wing on the car. They reserve the right, though, to adjust that. Um, he did say that the, the early concepts of the cars, I know we've seen some of his early design sketches, did feature a rear wing. But uh, they are keeping their eyes wide open on whether or not the actual data they get from track testing that car will be matched by the real car or whether or not that swings back into the realms that uh, you've just been talking about, MP, that a rear wing might give them um, more advantage. So, again, again, there's a lot of hashtag wait and see. We, we have got this fascinating, I don't want to say dead zone, but but development zone, if you like, over the next year, year and a half, before we get to the, to the, the candy you really want at the bottom of the tin. Um, 
but we're going to have to be patient here. It is great to see truly awesome design. And look, will that race car appear with those lights looking like that? No, I'm sure of that. I agree with you about the cockpit. It was good to see that car uh, close up today, the concept up today. Absolutely spectacular looking vehicle. Um, there's no doubt in my mind you will see a somewhat, um, how do we put this? I wouldn't say dumbed down, that's wrong. A somewhat t- toned down version of that for the actual race car with the realities of both regulations and safety and performance. But um, what we've got here is a very different looking Peugeot squad, Peugeot Sport squad, who are coming racing for all the right reasons. Um, they want to redefine people's understanding of their brand. And I think that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have about five minutes left. So okay. uh, do we try and crash our way through one or two fun in generals? What do we do? I think that'd be a good idea. Let's have a quick look here. I will. Um, uh, I'll take the first one from George Allegretta. Hey, George says, "Hey, gents, went to the SRX opener at Stanford Springs a few weeks ago. Totally enjoyed it. That is the the SRX series, an all oval, short oval, entertainment minded series created by NASCAR legend crew chief Ray Evernham and NASCAR champion Tony Stewart uh, with." popular drivers most of them retired from uh indycar sports car nascar etc says do you think a similar format would work in road racing perhaps a bit more technology and more freedom to tune up and set up the cars just cover this off very quickly i do george i don't know about the high tech and whatever else but i would say this srx for those who haven't seen it please watch go find the last race or two i believe they're all on youtube um they're doing something really important here and that is presenting something that is entertainment first for racing fans it's not long the their heat races and their the main race the feature races aren't super super long it's all done to entertain it's not and there is a championship they keep score it's gonna the title's gonna be awarded saturday night it's aired live on cbs here one of our uh, what three big, four big uh, network channel, not cable, but full network. And they've been getting really good ratings doing Saturday night events under the lights uh, at a bunch of these short tracks. Elio Castro Neves, uh, Bobby Labonte, NASCAR champion, Ernie Francis Jr. is in there, Paul Tracy, you know, there's Willie T. Ribs. It is just purely for spectacle. And I think they have totally caught major racing series, Graham, NASCAR, IndyCar, IMSA. It's an American thing, but we can just extend this outside of the borders to say the idea of we're going to do something to entertain you and they bang fenders and have fun. And, you know, it's not something we take too seriously. It's all for the spectacle. I think we need more of that in racing because sometimes this... This, the seriousness of pro racing gets exhausting. So um, I love the idea, George. Would love to see it elsewhere. Let me throw this at you uh, from Damian Peachman. Marshall and Graham, mm. what's the most questionable hairstyle you've come across oh, we answered in this racing? Last week. We well, answered this last week. Well, I swear we answered that last was week. Was I on the show last week? Uh, I think we did because this is the one that uh, this was the one that uh, Alex Brundle answered with uh, Jacques Villeneuve's helmet. Well, then you get to answer it. 
uh, then. <laughs> I'm not going to answer it. I'm going to, answer it. I'm going to ask myself and not answer a question from Damien Peachman because it is pertinent for right now. So apologies, MP. No, no worries. Dam- and Damien, you should see my hair. That might be the answer. <laughs> no joke. It is down. My wife says it's down to the middle of my back. Oh, I really? Cut, I have, brother, I haven't cut my hair in more than two years. My God. I know. Well, i got to take a photo. It's it's you remarkable. D- Damien asks uh, for my thoughts on the, the Spa 24 Hours entry list. Um, I'm not going to give you thoughts on the Spa entry list because this is the moment to get a little bit serious. Um, I don't know if you've seen over in the States, MP, what is going on in that part of Europe, uh, in the Eiffel region, um, in Germany, uh, around in Belgium, around in southern parts of the Netherlands. It is awful. Dozens of people have died. Uh, hundreds of people are still missing, and a lot of that will be because lines of communication are yeah. not doing well. Um, there is major damage in and around the Spa Francochamps circuit, the lower paddock. We've seen some pictures of that. Looks very badly damaged. Uh, there is the the main access tunnel into the paddock is more or less full of mud. Uh, that that's less of an issue. The main truck route in to the circuit has been destroyed. Um, we've got racing supposed to be happening next week with British GT. We've got the Spa 24 Hours supposed to be happening in two weeks' time. The major issue for me is, of course, the resources that are going to be required to make those repairs are going to be more urgent and required elsewhere, where there is serious risk to life right now. I just want to say this from all of us here. Stay safe out there. Um, I've been staying up until yesterday with a friend um, from the press room who comes from that region. Uh, There have been tears of anguish seeing what's going on back at home. Um, We love coming to Spa. We love coming to the Nürburgring. I'm less interested in racing taking place than am people being safe in their own homes, if indeed those homes have survived this. Uh, It is beyond tragic to see what's going on in that region. Uh, so I'll give my thoughts on the Spa 24. We know the race will definitely happen. That is not wishing that it doesn't. I hope it does. Uh, but there are bigger fish to fry in that region right now. And I know everybody listening to this would join our thoughts in saying we want to see uh, the people, their their property, their homes, their families um, safe and back in good order because the weather has just wreaked absolute havoc across a very wide swathe of that part of Europe. Um, so for the moment, Damien, I'm not going to give you an answer on the on the Spa 24 entry list because I don't know that it's going to happen. I hope it does. Um, but uh, we just hope that we can get back to racing at Spa when the attention has been paid to what needs to be sorted of getting people back into their homes safe, sound, and dry. Amen to that. Sorry, Take us home, brother. Take us home. Um, let's finish it with that one. Um, Exciting week in sports car racing, aside from the, the, uh, the goings-on in that part of Europe. Uh, lots more to come. Lots more to come on all of those stories and many, many more. It is going to be a great time to be talking uh, to you guys around the world and to take your questions in what's going to be a maelstrom of rumour, actual news, politics, you name it. All sorts of things are going to be coming up. For now, though... I've been Graham Goodwin. He's been Marshall Pruitt. And that was Rocky knocking over stuff, by the way. Thanks, Um, (laughs) Bob. We're going to say thanks again to Cooper Tires, to the Justice Brothers, and of course to TorontoMotorsports.com. We'll be back with you next week on the Weekend Sports Cars when I will be home. 
and we'll be home until we go to Le Mans. And now, thanks for listening. Thanks for sending in the questions. We'll see you next week.